Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians Podcast. And again, this is our continuation of our series on AI in healthcare and medical informatics. This episode is co-hosted with Dr. Muhammad Ali Jardali again. And uh, today our guest is Dr. Ruiz Atallah, who currently works at uh, Phillips in, uh, in Massachusetts. And Dr. Atallah actually started his journey at the Lebanese University, where he did his degree in engineering, and then subsequently went for a PhD at Oxford University in informatics. And he will tell us a bit about his path, but his path finally led him to do an MBA at the Imperial College in London in 2017. And finally, he was between Edinburgh, Dubai, and finally ended up in the US at Phillips. Currently, he resides in Boston, Massachusetts, where he is working on informatics and medtech and AI and healthcare. And he'll tell us more about his work at Phillips without revealing the secrets. I think you said it all. I, I don't know if there's anything I can <laughs> <laughs> so, so now I'm going to ask you to just provide us a, a brief overview of your journey. What led you into informatics? And finally, what led you into the field of medical informatics? Yeah, I mean, I was always interested in uh, informatics and how can it, how can it improve people's lives in general. And I, I was always I was I dreamt of becoming a doctor at some point. But you know, in a way, I'm glad that things turned out differently. And I'm, I'm sorry, you're a doctor. I'm, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> glad for I'm actually glad for you too. <laughs> uh, no, um, let's put it in another way. I'm glad that I went to the innovation route that led me to engineering and AI um, because it's it's a huge area. There's a lot to do there. And there's a lot of work, and it's it's a very creative area for those people who are entering this domain, uh, especially the Lebanese talent that we have back home. Um, so what led me was, I mean, what really motivates me is improving people's lives and improving patients' lives. And as you know, uh, healthcare worldwide has a lot of problems, whether it's inefficiency of care, whether it's that care is very expensive sometimes, procedures are expensive, medications are not adjusted to the type of patient, um, things are detected very late in the clinic. By the time patients are in the ED, they have probably had, you know, they, they are having symptoms. So how can we use AI? How can we use informatics to provide a, a safety net to help them, um, you know, improve care and improve the way care is given to these patients? So that's really kind of underlines a lot of the work that I did. So with, with Imperial, we did wearables that was to help people um, recover at home. So we monitored gait, posture, walking, vitals, where people left the hospital and went at home. Because you have a large time between the time that you know people go home and then are seen by a doctor later on. What happens in that time? Are they actually improving or deteriorating? So that's what we did at Imperial, a lot of work there. And at Philips, I worked on embedded sensing for babies, for neonates. So how can we replace a lot of the annoying wires and cables around these babies with something that's embedded in the bed that can measure the same features? We also worked on alarm as you, you are a doctor, so you know how bad it is when you go into the hospital and these alarms are beeping and they stop you from sleeping and you know it's all over the place. So how can you reduce that and have a almost a silent ward and ICU that can you can recover better? The last few years have been very focused on algorithms for predictive analytics. So how can you predict that something's going to go bad? How can you help clinicians use it in the clinic? And the last few years, I've worked a lot on benchmarking. So Philips has the largest uh, tele-ICU in the US. And this area has, you know, if, if you want, evolved or gained more importance because of COVID. 
the fact that there aren't enough in, um, intensivists and nurses to cater for such a large number of patients um, brought a new focus on tele tele-ICU, telecare worldwide, and especially in the US. So I'm very glad to be working with this area. And what we do is develop algorithms that predict deterioration. And we also work on benchmarking. How can you compare what was predicted to what actually happened? Are you doing a good job in your hospital or is it really bad? So that's really the algorithms, the type of work that we do at the moment. And uh, yeah, I work with the team of data scientists, software engineers, um, and others. Uh, you've had an impressive career, and I want to jump ahead and talk about like AI and all the cool stuff you're doing. But I just want to take a step back before we dive into uh, the cool work that you're doing now. But what motivated you to choose a career in data analytics way back when, when you were doing engineering and undergrad? Did you always know you'd end up in healthcare, or did you stumble uh, into the healthcare sector? No, I didn't always know. I, I love the people who say I wanted to be, uh, you know, an AI engineer since I was nine years. I didn't. I had no idea. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, in, in the Lebanese university, I was very interested in the topic. So, you know, um, it's one of the you know good universities in Lebanon. There's a lot of students there, some great professors. And I, I started to really get into the topic of um, analytics and AI. And, and I love that area. And then I got the opportunity with a scholarship from the Said, the foundation that's an Arab scholarship that supports Arab students to go to, to Europe and to other places to study. So that was really an opportunity that was open that I wouldn't have imagined, right? When I was in the UK and I was working on informatics, we, we uh, my PhD was mostly on underwater acoustics, but we were part of robotics. And I was attending um, kind of reading groups, et cetera, with that robotics team that was doing a lot of medical imaging back then. Uh, well, that's 2003, 2004. And AI has evolved so much in the last 20 years. But I was fascinated, like, you know, the way the, the vision they had for, uh, you know, what, what's upcoming in healthcare? Why are humans missing all these things? Can we help patients? So I was very motivated there. And I kind of stayed in the area. I really wanted to work in healthcare. So when the Imperial opportunity came up, I, I really loved it there. And I, I had a great time working on wearables, working with patients, so the motivation for me is the application itself, the clinical need. Yeah, so can you tell us a bit about your work on, uh, let's start with your work on wearables, actually, because now you were working on that in the UK, but you're not working on that right now. But where do you see the future of wearables and where do you see the role of AI in uh, yeah. wearables in the future? We worked back then on an ear-worn sensor that can measure your gait and posture. And we, we validated that it can actually do a good job as much as a gate lab, if you want. So instead of bringing patients to a gate lab, you put that sensor on their ear and you look how they move. I think the problem was it's an ear sensor. It's worn on your ear. It's a small thing, but you put on your ear, which was great back then. But the more wearables are embedded, the more people are going to use them. And I think we're, we're, we're seeing it. We're seeing it with the Apple Watch, with other products that are now, if you want, consumer focused, yet medical grade, if you want, uh, data are being uh, acquired. And I think for particular patients, you will see more embedded sensing. So the, the, basically, the, the point is that the more the sensor is embedded in your work, in your life, in your workflow, in your daily thing, the more you're going to use it. But we also have a lot of data, right? Now, the problem is inverse to what we had in 2003. Now is we do have huge amounts of data. How do you how do you screen that data and learn from it? That's where AI is actually working on. That's where we're going now with AI. The problem is going to be that it's so much data that you're having. And so if, if, if your physician or nurse practitioner or whoever gets all this data, what are they going to do with it? There has to be an algorithm to analyze it. 
because gets to be also a legal issue. Like, did you see any abnormality you did not notice? And did exactly. the patient have a bad or adverse outcome from that? So, and you know, uh, it's cognitive workload. So, I mean, one thing is, you know, as a doctor, there is a limit to cognitive workload for a human. If there are 44 different things that you look at for a certain patient in the ICU, can you do it for 200 patients at the same time? No, but can an, can an AI do it? and triage those patients for you so you can do it better? The answer is probably yes. So cognitive workload is something that we try to help clinicians with. So there's two sides of this equation, right? So you're talking about how this technology should be embedded into the patient or consumer or average person's day-to-day -day life. But on the inverse side of it, how does this technology and all this data become embedded in the clinician's daily workflow? And uh, you said something at the beginning in terms of medicine not being very flexible and not being innovative. And I also started as an engineer and ended up going to medical school. And this is one of the things that really frustrates me is how so you did the opposite. things are in medicine. <laughs> so you did the opposite uh, of what I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes I regret it. I, I don't I really know, things are not so flexible, slow but... in medicine. No, you know what? They, they have a limited bandwidth as, as clinicians, right? And they should not be given algorithms that are 50% right and 50% wrong. Like, you know, there has to be a certain accuracy. And that's what the FDA in the US is now focusing on. What is the accuracy that makes this clinician trust your algorithm rather than, uh, you know, it's, it's another source of annoying beeps and whatever. And it's the stupid algorithm again going, you know, you want to be careful that you're getting the right answer from those algorithms and they're streamlining the information for you. Also, what information do you look at? That's very important, right? If if you are looking at an ICU patient, they, they have so much data coming in. As a clinician, you have trained yourself probably to look at certain features or certain aspects of the patient. You say, okay, and you do a certain reasoning. Can we get AI to do a similar reasoning and help you triage? So AI would be like a tool that is in the background to help you analyze your, your patient and your data. I'm actually a pulmonary and critical care physician, and I... I know, uh, I, I, I checked you out. <laughs> yes, I do. I do interventional pulmonology. I do some ICU right now, and I'm involved in both. Both of them are... AI is pretty big in them, both right now. But I think what you're talking about with the tele-ICU and stuff like that, your work hopefully will be helpful in capturing... Because the key right now is, are you able to capture, let's say, patients with sepsis or severe infections exactly. early on or not? And you have all these teams and the hospital rapid response teams, stuff like that. And so far, the data has been plus and minus on these teams. So would AI be helpful in this case? And can you tell us more about your work in the tele-ICU space and yeah. uh, the role of AI in that space and what you envision yeah, the I future mean, to be? Um, we, If you look at like you know what the team has done in the last year, so we published a lot of work on retrospective data. Um, you have to do a lot of research, uh, understandably, right, on the data that you have to make sure that when you put an algorithm, it's doing the right job. So you you train it offline, right, to predict something like, for example, we have hemodynamic instability or uh, the need for ventilation, right? So that's a paper that we're working on now. But then you take them to the clinic and the integration in the clinic is, is also very interesting. But the important thing is what are the features? What are the clinical aspects you want to detect first, right? Because you can, you can develop algorithms nonstop, right? You can do anything. But what are the areas that really would help you as clinicians? So, um, you know, things like sepsis, things like infection in the ICU, that's a huge area, right? Um, things like kidney injury. So 
I mean, I'll give you an example of kidney injury. So we did a study in Bristol in the UK, and we published this one so I can talk about it. We analyzed the data before we went with, with the intervention, right? And we found that they have more than 40% of patients in the ICU get kidney injury, which is typical worldwide, right? I mean, the ICU patients have a high risk of kidney injury at different levels. But there were also um, you know, less awareness in the clinic. They were giving them nephrotoxic drugs. They weren't marking these patients. They weren't looking at their features. So we came up with an intervention that was with support from design and workflow that was based on guidelines. It's not AI, but it works very well because we had a champion on the clinic who actually helped train the nurses and use this dashboard that they're seeing. So now they know the patient, they know they're giving them the wrong medication, or they know not to give them that medication. And it changed the whole thing. So medication adherence improved by like 50%. We reduced the people who, who developed a severe kidney injury by 20%, which is huge. If you look at it in the long run, those people would require renal therapy, et cetera. So I'm imagining that taken another level. Had we put some AI there and even no, you know, notice those patients earlier, and we have algorithms for predictive kidney injury, that's the next step forward. So there you see even a simple algorithm that was integrated in the workflow made a change. But wouldn't it be great if those things can be noticed earlier and you can tell the clinician, hey, watch this person is at a very high risk. So you've, you've got to watch out what, what medications to give them. And it's not just the intensivists, it's also the pharmacists and the nurses. So the, the success of that study was that we sat with a group and it was, they, they were amazing. I mean, they brought in the pharmacists, the nurses and the bedside people, and they told us what they do. And then we kind of modified the, the workflow and we tried it for a bit. It didn't work. It was too complicated. And then we made something simpler that they actually worked in the clinic and worked very well for them. So I, I think AI is not as simple as just go plug it in the clinic and, play, and it's going to make a difference, right? What's the best way of putting it in a workflow? If you put it on a screen outside the, the unit and it's telling you stuff, most of the time people don't look at it if it's not part of their workflow or what they do with the patient. That's that's my yeah. that's our observation from the studies. It's, it's only one point of view. I mean, you might have people who tell you AI is going to take over the whole clinic, but from what I see, it's going to be step by step. No, just like you said, it's a tool and it's about how you use the tool and how you integrate it. It's not the end goal. It's it's a tool to support you in your decision making. So, uh, yeah, no, it, it, it makes sense. And uh, I think one of the things we hope for is that AI can catch things that we humans can't catch, right? So a lot of AI has been trained and it can tell you the gender of a patient from a retinal scan, which is something we humans can do. So if you just extrapolate that and maybe it can uh, find small signals uh, in the ICU or even before a patient gets to the ICU, uh, that would flag this patient and change uh, their course, uh, that would be great. Yeah, I think that's the exciting part, right? When you go to home care and before these patients even make it to the hospital, you're noticing that that patient who has heart failure is really having serious problems. Patients sometimes say, I'm a bit tired, you know, but if you actually had a small wearable they're wearing and you're finding out that, you know, their their cardiac output is varying over time or their, you know, other features, they're not moving, they're becoming more sedentary you know, if their doctors could be alerted, that would make a big difference. Maybe you would avoid them coming to the ED even, right? right? Yeah, I mean, looking at heart failure, COPD, asthma, uh, diabetes, like all these could potentially be prevented. And then the other question is when they get admitted by detecting, let's say, acute kidney injury earlier, sepsis earlier, are you decreasing their hospital length of stay? Are you improving their survival? And are you saving money for the hospital? 
when you do this. Yep. I think this is all going to be interesting things. It's very interesting. And the, the interesting thing is scaling and uh, replicating results. It's not there yet. Because you look at studies done in different health centers, whether it's Europe or the US, it's amazing. It's one health center. They come up with a predictive AI to do, I don't know, sepsis, right? They run it in the clinic. They have results. They reduce length of stay and mortality. Can you take the exact same thing and put it in, I don't know, Lebanon and get the exact same results? Probably not. And how would the AI work there? Because the workflow might be different, right? So that even the data coming in might be different. That becomes a big question. And it's, it's a big question for those working in the field, including me, on how to scale. So the one, one way we did with scaling when it comes to our US product is we went through the brute force approach of collect all the data you can get. So when you get 400 hospitals and 1,000 ICUs over 15 years, yeah, okay, you develop an algorithm and it should apply to your average US hospital. But... You know, that's not typically available for each and every health center doing research on AI. And I, I think like it, we need to push more for data sharing. I know, I mean, I, I work for a company and, you know, of course it's a commercial entity, but um, for for us and for others, and we do it. So with MIT, we release a data set, right? That is public data set. So um, my, you know, it was released in 2016 by Omar, who was leading the team before me. It was downloaded 3000 times. There are 600 papers quoting that data set. So there's a hunger for data sets that cover large uh, groups of patients and large areas because you want to do AI and algorithms that are meaningful and mean more to more patients, right? You don't want to work on one hospital. Uh, we're going to release a new data set with MIT this year covering COVID patients. But again, this is a U.S. healthcare data that can be used worldwide, but that does, you know, doesn't cover Europe or the Middle East. So I, I wish there was a more approach worldwide to bring in data that um, AI experts can use and train their algorithms. It's a fascinating point uh, that you bring up, and I'm glad to hear that uh, big companies are starting to share their data sets, because this is something that came up last episode. We were talking about EMRs and the whole problem of interoperability, right? So there was a law that mandated uh, everyone starts using EMR, but that doesn't mean they're going to share the data set. And you end up with a patient uh, doing a CT in one hospital and then going to another hospital, but they cannot share that data. So if you just extrapolate that to AI and all the new technologies, it's, it's the point that you were saying, like we need to share the data. It's it's not enough to have one data set that is unique and have uh, all the proprietary and all of that, but how, how do you share it? And you bring up a good point about this data being only in the US. Does it apply to a patient in the Middle East? Does it apply to a patient in Southeast Asia? So even in Australia, UK, like that's a different healthcare system, right? Right. Like yeah. some, some, some systems, for example, in, in Germany, they... They'd rather keep the patient longer, right? Length of stay is probably not their first item that they would try to minimize, whereas it's different in the US. Um, so these kind of factors affect how you treat your patients in the hospital. I'm, I'm sure, Dr. Khalil, you've seen different ways of dealing with patients and the, the ROI or outcomes can be different, different between countries. Right, exactly. And I've, I've had the chance, I mean, of working in, in the US and working in Lebanon. So I uh, know the difference uh, in healthcare in the two countries, and I think the data that you generate from the U.S. is not necessarily extrapolated to other countries because you've got different cultures, you've got cultural factors, you've got the way you administer healthcare, the way healthcare gets reimbursed. So there's a lot of different outcomes actually that you might be looking at in different ways in the different countries. Correct, uh, and, and you might have different medications. 
and different guidelines, right? Some medications are available in Europe, approved in Europe, and but then they're not approved in the U.S. and they're not used in the U.S. So how can you manage that? And I think one big thing about data sharing is also, I mean, you can look at the COVID-19 pandemic and probably we're going to have more pandemics in the future. But I think the way it was dealt with initially was not probably the best way. Like that showed that the world like deals with things separately. And maybe if there was a, an ability to data share, that would have been like a great yeah. thing. It, it yeah. really showed the siloed approach of, of dealing with the problem. And, you know, yeah. as you said, you know, if a future pandemic comes, I think re readiness means more connected healthcare systems, better efficiency in treating patients, because we saw that the bottlenecks in COVID, like areas where people were waiting in hospitals. I mean, Lebanon is a good example, right? You had uh, patients waiting in corridors during COVID. There was no place for them. And I, I think like the efficiency of care is huge in, in Lebanon. Like if I would focus on one area, that would be it. Can you sh uh, elaborate more on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that we have, I mean, we have a good healthcare system in terms of the quality, I think, in general of healthcare, we have some good private and public hospitals. The the lack of connection between them leads, leads uh, I mean, there is no nobody advising patients usually when to go, where to go, and where there's a space for them. If something bad happens, they would go to the nearest hospital. But if these hospitals were connected, and there was, you know, I don't know, the Ministry of Health app or something like that, that would tell them, don't go there. The AD is full. Go to that one. It might take you 10 minutes more in car, but you'll get to that hospital and uh, there's less pressure. And uh, for your condition, there are cardiologists available there, for example. Like imagine something like that and, and uh, kind of releasing the pressure a bit on the healthcare system. Also on the cost of care, you know, in, in Lebanon, I mean, unfortunately, you have patients going to hospitals and sometimes denied entry because they don't have the budget or the insurance that covers that. If they knew that from the beginning that this hospital won't let you in, uh, insurance you know, required, maybe you would go somewhere else and maybe you would save a life there. So I, I think the efficiency of care is very important. First, we need to digitize and connect all these hospitals, regardless of the political landscape. And the, the second step is, um, you know, can we use algorithms and AI to advise and become a more efficient healthcare system? And maybe, maybe I also add tele -IC, telecare, not tele ICU, but telecare in general, I, I think is huge in Lebanon with an area that's very mountainous and. Uh, sometimes remote hospitals and people living remotely, can you do telecare and talk to your doctor and specialist and maybe use some um, sensors at home uh, to measure some of your vitals? Like that might release a bit of the effort of, hey, let's uh, take a drive of three hours down to Beirut to see my cardiologist. Uh, three hours is exaggerated because our country is small, but you know what I mean. Yeah, but it might be more actually if you uh, the, the roads are blocked <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> if you add the traffic, I'm right. <laughs> but 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 you know, one of the things I think we talked interestingly, we had uh, several uh, podcasts with uh, with medical informatics people and then the head of nursing at Jaitawi Hospital, and they're working on some algorithms. But oh, one nice. of the one of the things they're talking about is data sharing between the hospitals, and and they were interested in in having more data sharing. Because yeah. that was probably a factor that was holding them back from being able to potentially to develop better algorithms in the country. I, I totally agree. No, no, you brought up something about need to digitize. A lot of uh, care in Lebanon is still being done by pen and paper. Like only the right. big uh, four medical centers in Beirut have an EMR or something similar 
GNMR, but most most hospitals and most clinics in Lebanon are still analog, hundred percent. So how how do you go from analog to AI? There's you need to digitize. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's a ladder, right? <laughs> First, we need to digitize, at least capture a lot of the uh, you know bring in some digital uh, aspect of it. It doesn't have to be the big EMRs, to be honest. Digitization can be simpler. There's a lot of EMRs. Like, for example, Philips owns an EMR in, in Brazil, in Latin America. That's a bit different from Cerner and Epic, but it's an EMR that's being used across hospitals. So there are many, many options now that just don't mean that you have to you know, fork out a few billion dollars. But basically digitize first, get the data. And you know what I would be very interested in? Uh, the quality observation of hospitals in Lebanon. You can then start to look at quality. And maybe the government should, but that's what they do in the UK, like ICNAR, right? It's an online tool. You can, anyone can go in, check a hospital and look at uh, rates of death, etc. So I would like us to have a more hand-on quality in these hospitals in Lebanon. What's happening there is, is death in the ICU, very high and unaccepted, uh, you know, unexpected for certain types of patients. I know this is difficult, but if we want to digitize, I think we should go there. Uh, collect all the data, have it in one place and have people look at it or even AI looking at it. And then we go into, oh, let's put AI as another layer to to help support patients. You could do AI if you have digitized in one big hospital, but it's much more effective when it's cross country. And we are a small country. So I think if there is a willingness to do something like this, we should do it. Yeah, I think there was, I mean, when I was there, uh, the Lebanese Pulmonary Society, actually, which was part of the Lebanese Order of Physicians, they started a database on COVID uh, yeah. between the different hospitals, uh, actually in, in each in each government in, in Lebanon, hospitals nice. were involved in that database, but uh, I'm now disconnected from it, so I don't know what's going on with that at this point, but, that, but there, is, there is interest in having databases of the different diseases, looking at outcomes, and comparing outcomes between the different hospitals in Lebanon. So I think uh, when you go to Lebanon the next couple of weeks, maybe you should touch base with them, with them over there and try to... <laughs> sure, that's exactly my holiday plan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think no, a lot of the data in Lebanon, at least at the lab level, like we don't have the big EMRs, but a lot of the labs at least have their own uh, digital uh, yeah. track that you can... Uh, work with. So we have smaller data sets. It doesn't capture all the patient uh, data that you would want, but at least the labs are, are, are mostly digital. So there, there's something. Uh, yeah. I mean, now uh, we're talking AI, with. we're talking AI for, uh, you know, the big issues of, of prediction and patient management, etc. But AI is infiltering, if you want, in terms of particular products. So when you look at new imaging products that are released by the big companies, you do have AI already there to help you detect uh, abnormalities, uh, to speed up processes, right? An MRI, for example, rather than taking one hour, it would take half an hour if you use uh, AI to uh, to position the patient. So you are seeing AI go more and more into different products. Although I think you're right. I mean, we do, we do need to look at the whole country and see how we can digitize. But I, I think bit by bit, you're seeing the hospitals adopt AI, even as part of their work without calling it like AI, uh, as we're talking about it now. Right. I mean, I work in the intervention pulmonary yeah, space, of... and and currently, I mean, I'm in a conference the, the past couple of days uh, on intervention pulmonary, and there's a lot of we do like robotic bronchoscopy, and there's a lot of AI actually that's getting involved in that space yeah. to try to get to peripheral lung nodules or lung nodules that are in the in the lung, and try to even treat them. So that's AI yeah. is going to have a big uh, component with that. Yep. Yeah. 
And you see some Arab countries, I mean, you see Saudi, you see the Emirates, you see Qatar investing a lot in this area and, you know, going further from digitization and having their own, uh, if you want, AI bodies that look at AI in healthcare. And uh, it's really impressive what they're doing and where they want to go. So I, I think we should be part of the story in Lebanon. Oh, you're spot on. I'm in Saudi right now and they have the world's biggest virtual hospital and the world's biggest tele-ICU connected to, I don't even know like how many beds, it's, it's impressive. And the hospital I'm at has like a smart stroke protocol that incorporates AI. And just like you were saying, as uh, they're doing like the CT scan, like you already know where the lesion is and you know like exactly uh, what to do next. It's, 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 it's completely next level. And yeah, it, it's, it's sad that Lebanon's missing out on that, but hopefully a lot of us working in this uh, field will be able to uh, give back to Lebanon. Uh, in some way uh, or another. Maybe just by starting this conversation, someone listening, uh, we can reach out, connect, and they're, they're starting to build the Lebanese uh, medical information, uh, informatics society. So oh, nice. uh, it's, it's building up slowly but surely, It's but something's that's, building. That's, that's good news. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, it's interesting that you bring the example of the, of the UK where uh, over there they have the NHS, right? So it can mandate... Uh, uh, to have like the data transparency uh, online, but in Lebanon or in the US where the healthcare system is fragmented and you have multiple prayers, like how do you get that mandate on everyone? In Lebanon, you also have, you know, the government hospitals, the public hospitals that maybe could be by a government mandate brought into, a, you know, a more uh, connected way. I don't right. know. There, right. there started something in Lebanon right now in terms of medication, uh, it's called Meditrack. So uh, there, there is some push towards uh, transparency uh, and they're starting at the pharmacy side. So maybe next thing would be at the level of the uh, hospital, but any, any initiative is welcome. Uh, we discussed AI in Lebanon and stuff, but I want to ask, I mean, medical informatics has been out there for a long time. EMRs have been out there for a long time. So why in the past couple of years has there been a huge interest in AI and why the explosion that happened? I'm sure it, there was research on this for a while, but why is it now in the news all the time? And why? Uh, and what happened that yeah. led it to be in the news? Yeah, I mean, one one aspect is that AI algorithms. I mean, thinking of large language model models or generative AI has become more mature. And you know, twenty twenty three is the year of you know large language models, generative AI, because it became closer to the way humans think, analyze large amounts of data, learn from it and be able to uh, converse and to reason if you want. Uh, this wasn't available before in terms of the large uh, way that we've seen it. And this was also related to the ability to store this data, to manage it, to learn from it, and have the capability and the tools like deep learning that can, can do that. So now it's, it's closer to everyone. I mean, most of you have seen ChatGPT chat or interacted with it. You can create images. This is very, you know, in your everyday business. Before, almost like 10 years ago, AI was for the AI experts doing research in a particular hospital, for example, in healthcare, and they would develop an algorithm or we would do it, we would run it and write a study, but it wasn't for everyday usage. Now people are thinking more about it. And one issue, I mean, you've noticed how, how fast chat GPT can help you, right? Write an email or do something. So can it help clinicians reduce the uh, the, uh, the effort they put on documentation? I mean, most of, if you live in the US, you know that going to a GP, they're not normally looking at you. They're normally typing and asking you questions. I would really like to invert that to 
them talking to you like they do in Lebanon, which I think is the right way. You're you're sitting to your GP, they're looking at you face to face, and something is recording the conversation, taking notes and labeling it, and the GP can check it later. I think that's almost, I mean, that's feasible with some startups that are showing this happening. Like, um, you know, it's it's going in that direction where AI is becoming more and more part of everyday clinical practice. Before it was a niche, uh, a niche um, kind of area that only a few people work on. I think it's, you know, to answer your question briefly, I think it's the the growth of AI, the ability to do this work with AI that we couldn't do before. And uh, the fact that, you know, it's it, there is a bit of a hype element to it. Like every CEO says that his company does generative AI now. But do they all work on uh, large language models or generative AI? Probably not. And sometimes you don't need these models. Like for data that is numeric rather than text, for example, there are tools that have been there for a while. And the AI is using it. So when you look at imaging data and the imaging solutions that you guys talked about, the tools have been there, right? That this this has been a release for like five, six years ago. But it didn't gain the, the hype that you have now with everybody saying it's the new industrial revolution. I mean, I hope I hope it leads to improvement overall. And, I, you know, I'm glad about the hype. <laughs> Bring it on, right? Uh, so we talked a little bit about uh, the problems with data sharing, but what are some other like roadblocks that you think organizations and other people are trying to implement AI in healthcare face besides like yeah. data sharing? What are like some other big? There are some blocks. I mean, one of them is regulatory. Uh, regulatory is, uh, you know, government agencies are very careful what to release and when to release it. And they slow down a lot of work that, that can be done quicker. Um, there's the issue of reproduce reproducibility. So how can you reproduce work that you do in a healthcare center in other places? There's the issue of bias. And this is very important. When you train your data on a particular patient group and you go run it somewhere else, you have to make sure that the groups match. And this is this is not yet there. And you've seen even some evidence of uh, you know AI being racist or trained badly online on on certain examples. So in healthcare, this is very important. So every algorithm we do, we then run it on different races. Does it work the same? Does it work for men and women? in the same way. So you have to prove that. And the FDA is becoming very careful with ethical AI. So the ethical uh, question is there. And I see it, it's not a roadblock, but it's something that people have to make sure that it works. Otherwise you lose the trust in AI. Another roadblock is some clinicians that believe that this is gonna take their job. Uh, we don't want AI. We, your algorithms tell us something we already know. You know, <laughs> and and that's always the question. Hey, we already knew this. You're telling us something again. But when you have, you know, 500 patients and you want to look at them, maybe telling them something they already know is not too bad, you know, like if you're triaging patients. So that's kind of another area. We mentioned data privacy and security. And finally, I mean, thinking of uh, quickly about this topic, I think ROI and proving the value of AI is a, is a reason for um, you know, uh, people to invest in it. If it doesn't show an ROI or a change in outcomes for patients, you go like, you know, clinics go like, yeah, why do, why should I put this in the clinic? It's not going to change the patient care. So you have some roadblocks from, uh, from governments, from people, and even from data sharing. Data sharing isn't as easy as you guys think in terms of AI. I'm, I'm glad Lebanon has a few approaches, but, you know, we've worked with customers where, you know, due to uh, some country regulations, for example, they don't share data. So how do you deal with that? Now AI actually has tools to deal with that. So there's something called federated learning where you train the model locally on data and you don't transfer data. You transfer what the model learned to a central model that can work with multiple sites. So that's a very cool tool for healthcare, right? 
you don't have to bring in all the data now. You can just train whatever you want on your local, say, Lebanese hospital data, if you collect it. And um, then you can share that information. So there's some roadblocks, but there are some solutions. Yeah, I think yeah Lebanon, is... you can just share it on WhatsApp, no problem. <laughs> Sorry? In Lebanon, you can just share the data on WhatsApp, no problem. <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah. But, but, I, but I think I mean, this brings us, brings us to like a good point in the discussion where what do you think the future is? I mean, as you said, I mean, some physicians think, all right, I mean, we're going to lose our jobs. This is going to take over, stuff like that. I mean, my thinking is it's going to be a tool that's going to assist in improving and hopefully the studies will come out showing that it improves healthcare outcomes, it improves yields of procedures, it improves, decreases side effects, decreases medical errors. And that's that's what that's my hope. But so, what do you think the future holds? And yeah, you know what they say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what they say. If something scares you, you should do it. So, <laughs> so and I'm I'm very excited about it because I think there are so many areas that could use AI and uh, can can really yield uh, improved outcomes for patients. I mean, think about medications, right? Uh, you know, kind of uh, personalized care and personalized meds. That's huge. Now, you know, um, we give a med for a certain group of patients based on, you know, what you give to the group. But could you customize a cancer treatment to that particular patient based on their phenotype and their genetics, et cetera? Like, I see that as very exciting. Could we cure some of these uh, conditions earlier? Most of, it, most of us have had, uh, you know, family members with, uh, with cancer, uh, heart disease, et cetera. Can these things be detected earlier? So I see a big uh, importance for a safety net caused by AI to detect things earlier, to warn people about the risks that they're they're having. Um, but I also uh, see it as important in dealing with global health crises. I mean, COVID was a wake up call. You know, we're disconnected, we're not working together. Can AI be, uh, you know, more efficient in how we manage our patients? So efficiency of care, management of patients, even clinical trials, pointing the right patient to the right trial and speeding it up, speeding the development of medications. That's that's going to be huge. But I also see like even basics, um, workflow, as we mentioned, uh, uh, note taking and documentation. Like, why is that? You know, if 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 you have like, you know, think of a secretary that's right next to you all the time, writing down your notes and sorting out your your life. Like, I, I don't think that's a very bad thing. You know, <laughs> it would free you. Uh, digital scribe would be revolutionary for sure. But of course it is revolutionary. I'm looking like, you know, uh, X years <laughs> in the future. But, um, you know, it's freeing you to do your real clinical work, right? To to really interact with your patients. I think by having those tools in our hands, we're going to become hopefully more efficient and, and smarter. I'm, I'm putting the positive side here um, because, you know, th there are inefficiencies. There are there are things to work on, right? We, we're, our job is not over yet. Like, you know, they've released large language models life is over like ai is still evolving um and uh what's pretty cool is now they can the ai can write its own code right you can so coding is now maybe going to change in the next few years some jobs are going to change but hopefully it would lead us to be more efficient in doing our jobs yeah no some uh, it's, it's i think this is a good uh point to uh conclude our conversation end it on a positive note and it, it goes back to what motivated you to begin with right to go into healthcare and to make a difference in people's lives obviously the work is far from done ai is is a tool that can can help us make a change sure there are some roadblocks but hopefully
a lot of uh, places in the world, including Lebanon, the US and, and elsewhere, uh, can use this AI to make an impact uh, on patients' lives. Do you wanna uh, add something, any parting final words of wisdom before you close off and head back uh, to work, finish off and go back to Lebanon for your vacation? I still have some work to do before I go to the <laughs> No, I thank you so much. That was a great summary. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you know we're exciting the new generation to work on this. I hope also that you know um, large companies can see the potential in Lebanon as a place to uh, for talent in AI and analytics and engineering. We have some very good schools, and now remote work is 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 possible. So I would like to see see them look at it like they look now at other countries like Brazil and India as a really a good hub for uh, engineers uh, who can work on this area. So uh, why not? I mean, we are one big village now worldwide. So uh, why not bring Lebanon further in this area? It'll be very exciting to hear, uh, you know, things happening in Lebanon. I'm, I'm surprised by some of the stuff you said, but I'm very happy about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Atala, for being on the podcast. And uh, thank you, Hamid Ali, for co-hosting and I think hopefully it was a good discussion for people to learn. But one one more parting word for you. So do you think, uh, can you assure us that doctors will still have jobs in the next uh, 15 years? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, Maybe you wanted to go on vacation, but I think, I think you're staying for the next 15 years or even for the next 20 to 50 years. I think, you know, uh, the level of human decision is is still not met in, if you want, from a clinical point of view, to trust AI to take over completely, but it can support you. It's an added tool. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank you.